0: Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. We are We started a new series last week called Overseers. Um, let me just kind of catch those of you up a little bit. we We are not done with Romans. We are going to pick the the uh, Paul's letter to the Romans back up the first of August, but we're hitting pause on that for a little while this summer because we're so scattered. We don't want to uh, kind of be hit and miss with Romans uh, in that content. So we're gonna we're gonna do some different things, and one of the things is this series called Overseers, and it's really meant to be a series that helps us all get clarity about what this thing is we call church. That's the first thing. We talked about that last week. The church, when we think of church biblically, spiritually, theologically, we should not first think about a building or an organization or a location or an address, even a particular pastor or pastors. When we think of church, we should be thinking of the body of Christ. We talked about that last week. The body of Christ, Jesus gathers his people not only to himself, but to each other. We are a part of something universal. You are a part of something universal. If you are in Christ, you are a part of this thing called the church where you are united in Christ to all believers. You remember the days when we used to, uh, when, if you grew up in church, we, we would come to church and call each other brother and sister so-and-so. How many of you remember that? Uh, Yeah, that's what we used to do. It's kind of fallen off the, um, we just don't do it much anymore, Uh, brother and sister, so and so, but it's actually very biblical to think that way. We are a family in Christ, amen? In Christ, we share his life together. So that's a little bit about what we talked about with regard to the church. The other part of this series that's really important is think of the church as the body of Christ, and we could probably put it on a scale uh, how all of us, either really in a really good and intentional way or not in a really good and intentional way, we all take care of our bodies in some way. Some of you are better at that than others. <laughs> so you're looking up here going, yeah, y'all are, some, some of them, uh, y'all are better than that than the pastors, right? Uh, but we all take care of our bodies. We endeavor to protect them. Jesus does the same thing. He wants to care for his body He wants to care for his people, and he wants to protect them. And one of the ways he does that, one of the primary ways, is through gifting men in the church, people in the church, to be elders or overseers of his church. The term in Scripture, pastor, elder, is really synonymous. Uh, It means overseer. It means one who's meant to lead, guide, protect, and teach in the church. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. But here at Res. We are in the process of expanding. You see two pastors up here. We are in the process of expanding the group of men that lead this church at the level of pastor and overseer. And so we're going to be adding elders to our elder team. One question we didn't address last week was, why do we need more than two? Why do we need more than one, for that matter? You you might have... Been a part of churches where there was sort of one pastor and then everybody else, and that seems to not be what Rez is doing. Why is that? Well, let's go to the scriptures because the Bible clearly indicates, gives us a direction when it comes to this elders plural. Why is it that we have elders plural? Well, when you think of Paul, who was really the greatest missionary that ever lived, and he took missionary journeys. And one of the things that he did on those journeys was he planted churches in a lot of cities. Uh, Here's Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And when they, talking about Paul and his entourage, had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul is writing here again, and he says, This is why I left you in Crete, that you might amend what was defective. So something wasn't quite right. And then he says, Here's what needed to happen. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. James chapter 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Here's what's clear in Scripture that Jesus intends the leadership of every local congregation to be shared by more than one person. Okay. That's clear. More than one person. It is meant to be shared leadership, not Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but it's meant to be shared. Okay. It's meant to be shared. There's meant to be a group that shares in the protection, the care, and in the teaching of, uh, of the church. Now, The Bible doesn't give us a formula to determine how many elders are needed in each church. So what's needed is prayerful discernment. The the, the group of elders that leads a church is really like a microcosm of the church as a whole. And so we really just have to depend on the leadership of the Holy Spirit to determine how many elders are needed at Res Church to care for this body, and to lead this body. And as Keith and I have wrestled with that over the last six, seven months, um, we've come to the conclusion that we think two or three more elders is what's going to be needed here at Resurrection Church. And so that's the direction that we're headed. Anything you want to add to that?
1: I would first like to point out how amazingly awesome we both look.
0: Why is it that we always end up wearing the same shirt?
1: We've got class and style. (sighs) And good wives that dress us. That's true. Now, I, I, I'd really like to just add a few things, few thoughts to the importance of having a group of elders. The first thing I would like to point out is it's it's a safeguard by God's design for the elder themselves, right? It's not good for a single elder to be responsible for the care and protection of the body. It's it's actually harmful for the elder, and so in God's design, it's, it's care for the elder themselves, but not just that. A group of elders can provide a more consistent and continual care, a better amount of care, a better type of care to the body that they've been entrusted to shepherd, and so it's really, really amazing at how God has thought thoughtfully. I know, right? It's mind-blowing that God would be thoughtful. But God cares not just specifically for an individual, but for a group of individuals called the church. And so the thing that you got to understand, no one elder possesses all of the giftings necessary to really shepherd the flock the way God has designed it. Pastor Bradley, Pastor Keith, neither one of us in and of ourselves have everything we need to properly shepherd you guys. And so when you add a group, you add a diversity of gifts that will help better care for the flock in which God has entrusted us. So it's really a, a, it's good for the body, it's good for the elder. And the thing that I want to be really cautious on and make sure you guys understand, it's not that the elder role is better than any other role that you play in the body. It's just a distinct role. It's not a superior role. Like, that's really important. Like, there's a distinction in giftings for the good of the body, right? The hand, the knee. If you try to pick something up with your knee, it's probably not going to work out very well, is it? Have you ever put your knee down on a Lego? They stick, but they don't stay, right? And so God gives us different people with different giftings that come from Him, with specific roles, not superior roles. Because if an elder does their uses their giftings the right way, what's going to be beautiful is it's going to benefit the body, and the body is going to benefit the elder. And so that's a beautiful theme that God has designed. And so that's why Pastor Bradley and I, after six months or so, just digging in the scriptures, we really feel like this is going to be good, not only for us. But for you guys, it's going to be healthy. It's going to make us a healthier church. And so we're really thankful for that. And
0: we need your help to, as the Lord leads, identify the men that are going to join us in leadership over the church. And that's why this teaching is important so that we can all have clarity about this.
1: Yeah, so how do you help us identify them? (laughs) <laughs> That's a big question, isn't it? And we'll get into some of the practical steps that we're going to take next week, but we just want to talk to you guys about what Scripture says, specifically about the qualification of elders. So we're going to first look at Titus. Our main text for the is in Titus and Timothy. So Titus chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Titus chapter 1. We'll give you just a second to get there. If you didn't bring your Bibles, it'll be on the screen, uh, and you can read along with us there. Titus 1 five through nine. You guys look pretty good today. I hope you have an awesome Father's Day to all the dads out there. No? You you want to have a terrible Father's Day, dads? This is a... These people haven't had their coffee. Mm. Well, maybe we need to read the Bible. We We should. We're going to read the Bible. All right, let's read Titus, (laughs) verse one, chapter one, verse five. We're going to read down through uh, verse nine. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also
0: rebuke those who contradict it. And then let's flip over to first Timothy. A lot of the same stuff here, but these are the two texts we're going to live in primarily today. First Timothy chapter three, verse one, just a few pages back. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil.
1: So that's a lot of qualifications, right? Well, let's talk about the first thing that's kind of listed, the idea of desire. Paul here, it's not so much that Paul's talking about whether there's a presence or an absence of desire, although that is certainly part of the equation. It's the why you have the desire. And so what Paul does is he says, here's the the desire, but before you think about even doing this, let me give you a list of qualifications to think about. And so what Paul's really trying to get us to do is to understand the weight of responsibility that sits on the elder's shoulders. Like, it's not a small thing that you're desiring. In other words, I think for Paul, it might not have been an absence of people desiring to be elders. I think it may have been an abundance of people desiring to be elders, but unqualified in doing so. Now, unqualified doesn't mean that they're not a good person, that God doesn't love them, that they're not spiritually well, that they're not any immature or anything like that. It's just about God's specific giftings. And so what I really want to just share kind of to make sure you get the point is Paul seems to be more interested here in what motivates the desire than the desire itself. In other words, for an elder to truly have a pure desire, they can't have the desire to shepherd the flock to be seen, to share a stage or a platform. It's not about that is what Paul's saying. And so he's he's very careful with giving us this long list of qualification so that we are careful to contemplate the weight and responsibility of this particular gifting and role in office inside the church.
0: Yeah. You know, when we start started wrestling with this, I think both of us asked the question to each other. After we get done teaching about this, I wonder if anybody's going to actually want to be an elder. I mean, because seriously, seriously, like so as we've looked at these texts and we've wrestled with this, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a pause in us. I mean, no one should be considered for elder that doesn't want to be an elder. Um, Yet at the same time, I think there is meant to be a healthy pause in all of us about this. I mean, James chapter three, verse one, I think we have that on the screen. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So th- this is not a casual flippant thing to desire the office of elder. Um it's 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 a weighty thing. The other thing I would say just just to add to that, you know, you might be sitting here today and going, "What what does all this have to do with me personally?" You know, Bradley, I'm just thinking about what I got ahead of me the rest of the day or tomorrow and you're talking about, you know, scriptures related to your job. Well, Notice that he says anyone who desires this desires a noble task. There is a sense that all of us in the body of Christ should be desiring the kind of spiritual maturity, the the kind of Christ-like character, and the kind of scriptural competency that is required to be an elder. That is a desire that we should all have. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to be an elder. Doesn't mean that everybody should want to actually be appointed to eldership, but we should be desiring the qualities of an elder. That is a mark that we're all aiming for. Amen? So let's, let's talk about another aspect, um, and this is actually, we, we're, we're going to do a series in July called You Ask For It, where we're asking for your questions about anything related to Scripture, life, Christianity, and we've actually got a few of those in, and one of them relates to this, is someone asked, can a woman be an elder? Uh, you've probably heard me, us, mention men. There's a lot of masculine language in Scripture when it comes to eldership, and so that might be a question for some is, what about the gender thing, male, female? What does that, what, what, what does that look like, okay? Um, let me be candid with you. There's a tension here. Um, there's a, a scriptural tension, um, and Keith and I embrace that with open arms. We embrace the tension That sometimes we find, sometimes the Bible is really black and white, and other times you kind of go, huh, you have to sort of live in some tension when the Bible is not completely black and white about something. And I'll tell you this right now, the church world is split down the middle on this issue. Some feel that the Bible is very black and white. Others feel like there's some tension. Others feel like we shouldn't even have a question about whether an elder should be a male or a female. I'm going to give you the whole picture as we see it, and then I'm going to tell you where we've landed. So let's back up one chapter in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Before I read this, let me say one other thing. I don't know what that was, sorry. We don't judge the Bible around here. The Bible judges us. I'll say it one more time. We don't judge the Bible around here. The Bible judges us. What we're going to do as elders, what we're going to do as a church, is we're going we're to make our best effort prayerfully, depending on the Spirit, to live biblically in every single aspect of the church. Okay? So let me read this. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Some of you really don't like that verse, do you? It's a a hard one, I'll be honest with you. Let's look at it closely, though. I do not permit a woman to teach, or it almost seems like Paul's going to give a clarification right there. I don't think he's talking about two separate things. I think he's talking about the same thing and he's going to give some clarity. I don't permit a woman to teach or here's what I mean by that, exercise authority over a man. We're going to talk about what kind of authority. And rather she is to remain quiet. Some of the husbands are elbowing their wives right now. What does that mean? Look at look at the first verse, first couple of verses of chapter 2 there. He says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It's the same Greek word. I don't think that Paul is saying that women should be silent. Rather, I think what he's talking about is the same thing he's talking about at the beginning of chapter 2, is he's talking about untroubled spirits. He's talking about contentment. He's talking about ladies having a contentment, I think, about the unique role that God has designed men to play, not only in the church, but also in the home. It's quiet in here. Not only in the church, but also in the home. I I would venture to say that all of us in here who are Christians and, and say, yeah, I want to live under the authority of Scripture, don't have a question about whether or not the husband, the father in the home, is called by God to be a spiritual leader. Does it mean he's a domestic dictator? Does it mean he comes home and props his feet up and gives orders? It means that he's a servant leader. It means that he's a humble, caring, protecting, servant kind of leader in his home who watches over his family spiritually. And so why would we think that the church would be any different? Because the home, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, is really a microcosm of the church, right? The church and the home really work together in a very beautiful way. So I think the most natural reading, of 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 which I know is a difficult verse Paul is saying that he would not permit a woman to assume the office of elder in the local church that he that level of authority oversight that's what really what elders do is elders lead elders govern in the church and they teach okay but I don't think that Paul is saying that it's wrong for women to teach in any and every context this is where I want to show you the other side of this coin, okay? Let me give you some examples. These won't be on the screen, but let me give you some examples. In Titus chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says that women, the older women, are to teach the younger women. And at the end of that verse, he says they are to teach what is good and so to train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. Here's another example. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul tells Timothy to remember where it is that he learned the Scriptures. Timothy's father was not a believer. And so Paul points Timothy back to two ladies, his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois, who taught him the Scriptures. Another example would be Priscilla. You remember Aquila and Priscilla? One of the most famous preachers in all the New Testament was a guy named Apollos. Some people considered him a rival of Paul. Some people thought of him as a better teacher than Paul. Do you believe that or not? Aquila and Priscilla heard Apollos teach, and the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 18 that they pulled him aside, and both of them, Aquila and Priscilla, instructed him in some things that he was lacking, all right? Here's another one. I think I do have this on the screen. Romans chapter 16, verse 7. There were many women, and this is throughout Paul's letters, many women that Paul affirmed as fellow laborers, fellow workers. Okay, Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Paul says, Greet Andronicus and Junia. My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles. Some actually interpret that as well known among the apostles, okay? There's a lot of scholarly debate about that. And they were in Christ before me, all right? the very least, Andronicus and Junia were a ministry couple that Paul affirms were doing significant ministry, and more than likely, they were actually imprisoned, just like Paul, for preaching Christ. And he considers them fellow laborers. It's also worth noting that Jesus had women that followed him. Right? You remember Mary sitting at Jesus' feet? I bet you've read that passage a hundred times and never really thought about the fact that a Jewish rabbi did not... permit in those days a woman to sit at his feet and be taught as if she were a disciple, but Jesus did. And I think one of the most stark examples is the fact that when Jesus rose from the dead, who did he choose to make the first announcement of the resurrection? Who did he choose? Women. Those were the first sent ones to announce Jesus Christ had rose from the dead. Do you see why I say there's a tension here? There is a tension here, and let me be clear about the tension. The tension for us arises totally and completely from the Bible, not from our culture. The cultural tensions over gender that we see happening around us right now are not what informs us at all here. We are being informed and led totally and only by the Scriptures here. But I think there's some other things to consider. One is that Jesus chose 12 men to be his apostles. Um, Every specific reference in the New Testament to elder mentions men. And there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever the picture that marriage plays in the redemptive story. That in this drama where A man and woman coming together as husband and wife picture Christ's relationship to his church. The husband pictures Christ loving his bride, the church, and the wife pictures the church admiring and respecting uh, Christ himself as she admires, respects, and submits to her husband. And so, though we say there's a tension, I think we could all see that there is a clear pointer there's a clear sign that the Scripture is pointing us towards men occupying the office of elder in the local church. And so where we have landed at Res for now is that elders at Res Church will be men. That is our effort to live biblically and live under the authority of Scripture. But there is a way in which we are representing the tension that we see in Scripture because we believe firmly that women are absolutely, as they are gifted and as the Holy Spirit leads, meant to be able to teach, meant to be able to uh, hold significant roles of leadership in the church under the oversight of the elders. And you probably noticed, we Andrea, who is our children's pastor, we gave her the title pastor. She's not an elder, but we gave her that title. And it might sound like a contradiction to you, Maybe it is. But in our mind, we have entrusted to her a level of responsibility that is like that of a shepherd. She is shepherding our children. She is overseeing their lives and teaching them the Scriptures, and we are absolutely great with that because we believe she's gifted to do that. There is a distinction, okay? She does that under our oversight, but we, it would be not only would it be a disservice to the role we've asked her to play, but we feel like it would be unrealistic to not affirm that you know she is functioning in a shepherding kind of role over our children's ministry. And so, what we where we have landed is that elders will be men, and elders will oversee the church. But we are absolutely all about ladies using their spiritual gifts, leading in the church, teaching, doing so under the oversight of the elders.
1: Yeah, so the only thing I would add to all that he just said was in our two texts today in Timothy and Titus that are primarily, there's really only three places where elders and the qualifications are listed, Timothy, Titus, and Peter. And in all of those texts, what we see are primary primarily masculine terms. In other words, his household, that type of language, husband of one wife. And so a lot of the language in Timothy, Titus, and in Peter are masculine in terms. And so I would just kind of throw that in there just as kind of a little nugget for consideration. So there you have it. I threw it in there, and you loved it. I could tell. So especially you, Brian, I can tell by the smile on your face. I would not, if I were you men, get in the car and be like, that's right, be quiet, woman.
0: No, we're going to get to that at the end, so don't worry about that.
1: (laughs) You'll come in church with a black eye next week, and I'll be laughing at you. But... So there's so there's one qualification. Well, let's talk about another really controversial uh, subject. It's really personal to me, if you guys know my story, but man of one wife, husband of one wife. So let me just explain what I believe this text means, um, and then I'll share a little bit of my story with you guys and kind of let you in on a little, little secret if you don't know it. Uh, the phrase... Has caused a lot of controversy in church. It's caused church divisions. And at the end of the day, our intent is to let the Bible say what it says and just be as firm and trusting of God's word as we possibly can. And so the husband of one wife would be better translated. We don't, you ever notice how sometimes like the original language doesn't translate all that well into English? <coughs> Have you ever noticed that when you're reading your Bible and someone says something and you're like, How did you get that out of the Bible? I didn't read that at all. That's because of language barriers. But the the literal translation, if you were to just take it straight out of the Greek, is one woman, man. That's how it would read in the original language. And I think here Paul's emphasis is not primarily on divorce, although that certainly plays into it, right? What Paul says is he doesn't say they can never have been divorced does he? He says it's the husband of one wife. And so the emphasis is more on the faithfulness of the husband to his wife than it is whether or not he has ever been divorced. And I would support that with this kind of thought too. If in fact, if Paul is making a, this can never have happened statement, then Paul would have disqualified himself. Because as we read later in the qualifications, it would be nonviolent and Paul was a murderer. And so Paul cannot be making a never statement Because if that's the case, Paul isn't qualified to be an elder. And I think any of us would say, Paul, you're welcome on the elder team at Resurrection Church. I don't think we would hesitate with that. And so we know that Paul isn't necessarily primarily pointing out an issue of whether a divorce has occurred. A lot of people tend to take this phrase also to mean, well, that means he can't have multiple wives. Well, if you're a man and you have multiple wives, you're nuts, okay? You're crazy anyway, and so you are disqualified just sheerly based on the fact of insanity, okay? And so... Is that in your notes? No, that's not in my notes. That was ad lib. You got to watch ad lib when you have a microphone. Bad things can happen. But it's polygamy is certainly inferred, but it's, again, not the primary point. Uh, the point that Paul is trying to make is does the husband have a pattern of living that shows he is faithful with his eyes, his mind, his heart, and his body to his current wife. That's what the, the emphasis is on in this text is whether or not the husband is loving the wife as Christ loves the church and has a pattern of living that shows and not only shows proves that this qualification is being met. And so, Scripture's pretty clear on divorce. It's, it's a sin. It is permitted, but it is a sin. And so in Matthew 19, and I think Pastor Bradley may talk about some of these verses too, but, and in 1 Corinthians 7, we see where Scripture permits divorce, but it's not primarily, again, the emphasis that Paul is focused on here. And so a man would not be disqualified from being an elder if he has been divorced, if he is presently, currently loving his wife the way Scripture commands the husband to do. Now, many of you know my story. I was pastoring at the time when my uh, then-wife walked out on me. We spent nine months in counseling. And one day she looks at me, nine months into counseling, and she goes, I'm done, gets up, and walks out. I spent another three, four months in counseling for my own benefit, Didn't really help me, still lost my mind. But anyway, the point being is I spent that time trying to take care of myself. I was served with divorce papers. I tried to fight it. My attorney basically said I was wasting my time and my money trying to fight it. Now, many of you guys know me. You know my current wife. You know how I love my wife, and she's easy to love, and she's easy to look at too. But anyway, again, not in my notes. You got to watch those ad libs. The thing that I want you guys to know, though, is that the thing that qualifies an elder is not whether or not, and this is really personal to me because I've been hurt from people taking a different stance, is not a never statement. If it's a never statement, then none of us are qualified. And grace is insufficient. But grace is sufficient for the forgiveness of sins, and if God forgives me, then who can hold that account against me, right? Right? And so it's a never statement. So let me throw it at Pastor Bradley because I'll keep talking about this one.
0: I would just simply say that um, you know churches differ on this, but I think Scripture's clear. I'm just going to mention these scriptures, and you can look them up later if you want. Romans chapter seven, verse two clearly states that the bond of marriage can be severed by death. Jesus stated in Matthew 19:9 9, that except for marital unfaithfulness, he acknowledged that when one spouse is unfaithful to the other, that marriages will at times fail. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about when an unbelieving spouse leaves and vacates the marriage, which I think is um, exactly what Keith went through. That, um, and at the end of that, he says, that brother and sister is not enslaved, you're called to go in peace. And so whenever the Bible legitimizes divorce, uh, that it does happen doesn 't mean god doesn 't hate it doesn 't mean that there isn 't always sin in it, but when it happens and it's there is a spouse who 's endeavored to walk godly in it, that spouse it, the Bible is clear I think is free to remarry in those cases, and so that 's where we land on that but if if someone 's being considered for elder as was Keith and there's a divorce in their past, that's something that we're going to look at very closely and prayerfully and endeavor to see, is this man living uh, faithful and committed to his wife? Is that what we see as the pattern in his life? So I think that's what Paul's after there. The next qualification we're going to talk about is where Paul says manages his household well. Uh, We're not going to spend a whole lot of time here this morning, but simply put, the word means stand before Is the man standing before his household well? I don't think that necessarily means that if there are unsaved people, either a spouse or children in his household, all right, that that necessarily disqualifies that man from being an elder. The, 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 I think what Paul is after there is, do we see this man standing before his family well, exemplifying Christ-like character and endeavoring to be a spiritual leader? Okay, Just like in a, in a church like this, um, where there is a pastor or pastors pastoring, not everybody in the church is behaving like they ought to behave. Oh, I got a pretty good amen there. That's all right. I'm surprised yeah. by that one. So that wouldn't necessarily disqualify that pastor from being an elder, and I think the same is true uh, in the household. The household is meant to be a proving ground for the office of elder, it, and we're going to get to this at the end, dads. We're going to talk about this a little bit more. Is that it's meant to be a place where a man has the opportunity to exemplify the spiritual gifts and the Christ-like character. And all of the qualifications of an elder is he gets to stand before his family well. And I think that's what Paul's after there.
1: Yeah, I would just say that this is not about ruling over your household. This is about serving your household. That's right. If Jesus is the chief elder, which Scripture tells us he is, that he's the head of the church, right? If Jesus is the chief elder and his mission was to serve, then any elder serving under Jesus must also serve. And so the primary emphasis of this text is not ruling over. I mean, come on, guys, we can rule our homes with an iron fist and force obedience, but that's not the point. The point is that we are the ones continually and consistently serving in such a way that we encourage our children toward the love of the Lord and not provoke them away from the love of the Lord, right? Scripture tells us that we should not provoke our children in Ephesians, right? but that we should encourage them toward the Lord. And so the text, again, we tend to get focused on the children, right, when we read this. But remember, the primary focus of all of what we read is on elders, not on children. It's qualifications of elders, not qualifications of children. And so the text is not so much talking about whether or not the children are good little Christian children, right? That's not primarily what it's talking about, but what it is primarily talking about is how is the person serving their home? Are they serving their home in a way that would encourage, promote, push their children toward Jesus, or are they serving their home, ruling their home in such a way that pushes people away from Jesus? And so it's primarily about submission to who our chief elder is, and out of that flowing the kind of living and serving that encourages and promotes a healthy spiritual dynamic in the home. And so that's what Could, I would say. Let me
0: add one thing to that. I, I think all of us who are in Christ and have the Spirit living in us, that's that's what we know to be true, right, from Scripture. I think all Christians, all Christians who are filled with the Spirit have a level of discernment that the Spirit gives us, Right? we are able to discern what's going on sometimes in the lives of people around us and even in our own home. And here's what's true, and I think you know this. You can you can interact with my family. I can interact with your family. And you can tell if the husband and the father is standing before his family well. You can tell if that husband is serving his family as a Christ-like spiritual leader in his home, a servant leader in it, can't you? You can tell. It just the home exudes it. Even if it's doesn't mean that all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed necessarily. But you can tell, you can tell when a man is leading his home well and standing before them. I think we all have that level of discernment that the Spirit gives us.
1: Yeah so let's let's move on to our next you guys okay? You good? Elbow the person beside you say you good? Eric and Tanya, I didn't see any elbows. Elbows. All right, let's look at above reproach. So this literally means that when or if you are accused of something, your conduct will ultimately show that you're blameless. That's what it literally means to be above reproach. I think a lot of times we take that to mean that, well, you didn't do what I wanted to do, so you're not above reproach. Or you take that to mean, well you did something wrong and it was a sin, and so you're not above reproach. That's not what this is saying. Listen, we're elders, we're, we're also people, and we sin. Pastor Bradley and I sin, believe it or not. I know it's hard to believe, but believe it, we do. And the right response when you are above reproach is when you do sin, you repent. And you ask for God's forgiveness and you turn away from that kind of sin and don't keep continually committing it, right? And so above reproach is really about your life has consistently demonstrated that you meet these qualifications, that there's a pattern to your life that shows that you are meeting these qualifications daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly. And so the emphasis there is, So when I was a police officer, one of the things that we had in court was this idea of the preponderance of the evidence. And the whole point of this is that the preponderance of the evidence doesn't mean that there's no doubt. It just means there's no reasonable doubt, right? You've heard you're guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And so the point being is it doesn't mean that accusations won't come. It just simply means that when the accusation comes, there's going to be so much evidence that it squashes the accusation. It doesn't mean that you won't have doubts. It doesn't mean that you won't have questions. It just means that if you put a little reasoning into it, it will be beyond a reasonable doubt. It doesn't mean that there can't be doubt. Just it would be an unreasonable doubt to believe it. And so the point is is that it doesn't mean elders never sin, it doesn't mean that we are always always getting things right, but what it does mean is that there is a consistent pattern of living that is demonstrated that we are qualified to do the tasks that God has given us to do and that without a shadow or a reasonable doubt the evidence the preponderance there's so much evidence by how they love their wives, how their families Uh, their homes are functioning, how they're quiet, they're gentle, they're self-controlled, all of the lists that we have that we're consistently doing these things. And so above reproach doesn't necessarily mean you always get everything right. It just means that if you get it wrong, you own it and repent. But if you aren't getting it wrong and there's an accusation, then it's going to fall short. It's just not going to be proven. And so that's kind of what above reproach means. It's It's a simple kind of compressed answer of what those terms mean, but I, I want to make sure you understand it's not about, well, you didn't do what I like, right? It's not about preferences, and it's not also not about whether or not it's a personal conviction of yours. It's did you violate the word of God? That's the question, and if if so, is there any evidence to prove it? And if there's any evidence that goes beyond a reasonable doubt, then the right response is repentance. But if there isn't evidence that goes beyond a reasonable doubt, then guess what? Their lifestyle will have proved them innocent. And so that's kind of what above reproach means.
0: Above reproach is the heading, I think, under which all of these things fall. Husband and one wife manages his household well, uh, etc. It's the heading, it's the banner under which all these things fall. One of those things um, of the qualifications I'll mention here is must not be a recent convert. Um, Paul says that, you know, so that he doesn't fall under the condemnation of the devil. Uh, What is he talking about there? I think the condemnation of the devil seems to refer to the fact that the devil got puffed up. If you know anything about uh, the story in Scripture of his fall From heaven, he was—he's an angel. He was created. Uh, He was in heaven. He rebelled against God. He and a lot of angels with him, and they were cast out of heaven. And really, the root of that was pride. And so, not being a recent convert, really, the emphasis there is that you know part of the the maturing process of a Christian is growing in humility. Right? If you if you are a believer in Christ, if you're a Christ follower. A big part of your spiritual maturity will be growing in humility before God. If there was one thing that my grandfather said to me over and over and over and over again, especially in my adult years as I entered ministry in local church, he would say to me, Bradley, stay humble before God. Stay humble before God. Stay humble before God. So not being a recent convert, the risk there would be, that that recent convert might not have the protective mechanisms and the spiritual maturity to guard against pride.
1: Yeah, I love that God is concerned about the recent convert, aren't you? Like, this is God protecting the convert. You understand that, right? Like, this isn't God saying you're never going to be an elder. It's God saying, I need you to be spiritually healthy before you can become an elder. In other words, he doesn't want the new convert slipping and falling right and so it's it's protection for the convert but then he also says new which is a length of time right if something's new it means it's new it's not old and so new has to do with whether or not there's been enough time again to actually observe the pattern of living in other words if we continue reading in titus what we see is they claim to know God, but their actions deny Him. And so if they're a new convert, we need time to observe their pattern of living and see if they're consistently behaving in a way that is above reproach, right? And so a new convert, that's probably going to be a little difficult. And so the point is, and listen, it's not just for a new convert. In Acts, it tells us that we have to be on guard for this, right? Let me read it to you. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy spirit has made you overseers be shepherds of the church of God, which he has brought bought with his own blood. Keep watch over yourselves. Like we have to be diligent about this. And so it's going to be really difficult for a new convert to do this. And so I love that God is concerned about the elder in development. Aren't you? That's good news. Amen. Able to teach. Oh, you want me to go ahead? Yeah, okay. roll. We're going to roll. So, Let's talk about able to teach. I think there's a little bit of confusion with this one. And first off, there is a distinction. This is the only distinction really that Paul makes between the elder and a deacon. And so we probably should pay a little bit of attention to it. So Timothy says, in Timothy, Paul says able to teach, but in Titus, Paul says, hold firm to trustworthy word as taught, give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So, First off, the greatest teachers are first, better students, right? And if Pastor Bradley and I want to be decent elders, then we're going to spend a lot of time in Scripture. We have to learn it. We have to know it. We have to to wrap ourselves and clothe ourselves in the Word of God. And so we must be students of the Bible first, but not only that, we must be able to communicate the things the Bible teaches. And so when things get really difficult and kind of confusing in Scripture, we have to be able to explain these things. And so, Able to Teach at least has the ability to communicate it and share the information, and not only share new information, but correct wrong information. And so I want to spend just a second talking about false doctrines because there's a lot of them out there nowadays. But listen, when we go to about rebuking, The first thing that happens typically in our culture is we sense the idea of rebuking as something negative, don't we? Like if Pastor Bradley were to rebuke someone, one of you guys, you would probably be like, well, that's really negative. But that's not the point, because the idea of rebuking in the Bible is to actually persuade and convince to win the person. So the rebuking isn't about proving oneself right and someone else wrong. That would be prideful. It's about having a conversation with someone in such a way that is persuading them that what you're teaching them is correct. And that's not so that you can go, I was right, you were wrong. That's so that you actually win the person. It's about loving the person and countering the naysayer, not the argument. And so the whole point of this is is really more about us being able to do that the right way. When Paul says able to teach, that is at least part of it. There's a lot of people that know a lot of things, but they're not able to communicate things in a loving way that ultimately wins the person. You can win the argument and lose the person, and you're not rebuking anyone biblically. And so what Paul's trying to help us understand is that this is a rebuke that is for the good, it's positive, and it's for the health of you as an individual. In other words, it's like going to a doctor and you having a heart condition and them looking at you going you need to lose some weight. That's good news. It's not fun to hear, but it's really good news, right? That if you lose some weight, you're going to live a little longer. And so that's kind of how the rebuke goes. But it's, it's not just about that either. I think a lot of us think teaching is this. And this is teaching, absolutely, but it's not primarily about pulpit time. It's More about whether or not you can find yourself, whether you find yourself in front of a group in a church setting or whether you're sitting at a table drinking coffee with someone, are you able to communicate the things of Scripture in a way that people are able to understand and apply to their lives and see the transforming Word of God at work and active in them? And so, able to teach is really the distinctive qualification between an elder and a deacon out of all the things that are listed. And so, that's and as Pastor Bradley shared, that's this is the one that gives me the greatest pause, if I'm honest. Like, I remember we would be leaving breakfast, and we'd be coming back to the office and talking about this stuff, and I was like, I don't know. Like, hold on a minute. <laughs> I don't know that I want God to hold me to a different standard because I'm teaching. Like, honestly, part of me was like, it might be better if I'm silent, it's a daunting thing. It's a big responsibility. And let's just be honest, no one likes rebuking anyone. And if you, if it's only about standing on the pulpit, having a pulpit, then, then I think we've missed the point, which goes all the way back to where we started. And the desire cannot be about standing in front of people,
0: but standing for people. I, I'll tell you the hardest thing that I've ever had to walk through as an elder. Um And it happened here at Res Church. This was probably 10 years ago or more not really sure. Um, you, some of you were here then. You remember that um, at that time, um, Seth Kane was uh, one of the elders with me here at Res Church. And a man that we invited to come and speak who had been a mentor to me um, for a long time, beginning in my college years, we invited him to come speak. And he came here and he spoke and he taught some things that we immediately went, no, no, that's not right. And I think even there were some, maybe some of you that are here today that even wrote to us after the fact and were like, I didn't quite see where that was biblical. Like there was some major red flags. Not that he got up here and said, I think this man loves Jesus and I think he's, a, he's, he's pastoring a great church today even. Uh, but there were just some things that were off that we felt like were, too dangerous to leave alone. And so the next week, Seth and I stood up before the church and we corrected a man that had been a mentor to me. And, and we did that because of how seriously we take the scriptural call of elders and overseers to guard and protect the church. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do Distanced myself from that relationship, and thankfully, God provided me with another mentor and a pastor in my life, uh, Brian Alkin, who's been helping us walk through this the last six or seven months. Um, But that able to teach doesn't necessarily mean that every elder has to be able to get up and be a master communicator in front of a large group of people. It's not necessarily what it means. First Timothy five verse seventeen says, "Let the elders who rule." Let let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So I think Paul had an imagination for among the team of elders that oversee a local church, there may be some that are especially gifted in preaching and teaching that may do the bulk of that. But all of them, all of them must be able to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. That's what able to teach is all about. Now, dads. Jesus is calling. I'll check on that. <laughs> Jesus is calling. We hadn't sung that song yet, have we? It's about we're about to. That that line's in that song. Let me talk to the dads. Dads, in a very real sense, this is what we're called to do in our homes. And praise team, you can come on. This is what we're called to do in our homes. on On this Father's Day, yes, we want to encourage and appreciate all the fathers that are here today. But we thought we'd take this opportunity to just challenge us all a little bit. How many of you dads would agree? We are called by God to stand before our families. Well, I'm gonna try it again. How many of you would agree that we're called to stand before our families well? We're called to lead them spiritually and not in a domineering, overbearing way, but in a servant, humble, Christ-like posture. I think the picture of leadership that Jesus gave us all was when he took a washbasin and a towel and he washed his disciples' feet. That's what we're called to do spiritually for our families. We're called to be above reproach. Dads, your calling is is one of the things that I see. I'm not saying it's true of any of the dads in this room necessarily. But one of the things that I see in the church is I see men deferring or disconnecting from their responsibility in the home and, and projecting that on their pastor's. As though, okay, the pastor of the church that I go to, he's the one that's meant to be the one who stands before us well, who is spiritually competent and, and growing in, in the knowledge of the Lord and in Scripture and living above reproach. He's the one. I'm not really responsible for all that because I'm not a pastor. No, dads, husbands, this is your calling to, And you live it out in your household. And so here's what we're going to do today to close is I'm going to invite everyone to stand. And I want to invite the dads, if you will, all the dads, to come forward and stand here. And we're just going to pray over you. Pastor Keith is going to lead a prayer. We're going to sing first, okay? But everybody stand. I'm sorry, I wasn't clear there. Everybody stand. We're going to sing. And then Keith's going to invite you down to pray. We're going to close in prayer over you. and I, I just ask, that the. let me just pray this. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take what we've talked about today and make it so practical and real, not only for our church, but for every man in this room, every husband, every father called to be a spiritual leader in his home, called to stand before his family well, live above reproach, not be violent, not be a drunkard, Lord, not be quarrelsome, but to be a man of God in his household, to be a watchman over his family. I pray that you would challenge and call men to repentance today through your kindness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's sing and then we'll pray. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com slash give. Thanks again for joining us.